Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the, his office for the sake of the cause. We're glad uh, to have you with us as well. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Craig Austin. He is the um, author of American Restoration. I should say co-author, American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. And oh, does our nation need healing. Anyway, he'll be joining us in the second half of this first hour of today's program. Well, today, of course, is day two in the Amy Coney Barrett hearings in the the, um, Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate to determine whether or not she will become an associate justice of the Supreme Court. I think it's all but a um, done deal, but the process is somewhat challenging nonetheless. In fact, she said that she knew her faith would be caricatured, her family would be attacked if she was nominated to the Supreme Court, and they made a very tough decision that they would move forward. Uh, She said her family and faith would be attacked. Uh, She responded to senators during her Supreme Court confirmation hearing today, day two. The nominee said she expected attacks against all of that. The Senate Judiciary Committee began grilling her on Tuesday as her marathon hearing continues. It will continue through the day today. And then again tomorrow, she spent the um, half uh, first half of the day being pressed by Democrats on abortion, Obamacare and more, while repeatedly declining to weigh in on hot button issues, invoking the so-called Ginsburg rule. It's always interesting that nominees, uh, that fact is used against them as if they are trying to uh, hide something from the American people. But the Ginsburg rule says you don't make comment on cases that you may have uh, the opportunity to judge on in the future. I've tried to be on a media blackout for the sake of my mental health, Barrett told the committee. You can't keep yourself walled off from everything, and I'm aware of a lot of the caricatures that are floating around. She added, we knew that our lives would be combed over for any negotiable and negative details. Uh, We knew that our faith would be caricatured. We knew our family would be attacked. And so we had to decide whether those difficulties would be worth it because uh, what sane people Uh, would go through this process if there wasn't a benefit on the other side. She continued to say that the benefit is that I'm committed to the rule of law and the role of the Supreme Court in dispensing equal justice for all. And I'm not the only person who can do this job that I was asked, and it would be difficult for anyone. So why should I uh, say someone else should do the uh, difficult thing uh, if the difficulty is the only reason to say no. Well, the hearing today began with impassioned broadsides from Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham against the Affordable Care Act, while Ranking Member Diane Feinstein uh, attempted to drill down on Barrett's abortion stance as well as her opinion on gun rights and the Affordable Care Act. What I'm trying to do uh, very briefly this morning is to demonstrate the difference between politics and judging, uh, Graham said in the opening uh, of the hearing before saying that he would present his preferred health care vision. All of my colleagues on the other side had emotional pleas about Obamacare, Graham said. Obamacare has been a disaster for the state of South Carolina. All of you over there want to impose Obamacare on South Carolina. We don't want it. We want something better, end quote. Well, Judge um, Barrett quoted uh, Justice Ginsburg on how nominees should behave during hearings. Graham also cited hospital closings 
premium increases, higher proportion of federal money going to blue states under the ACA. Meanwhile, Feinstein asked Barrett it to be forthright about her views on abortion and Roe versus Wade and tried to drill down on her stances on a number of issues. I do want to be forthright and answer every question so far as I can, Barrett said, citing Justice Elena Kagan's confirmation hearing. She said that uh, she was not going to grade um, a precedent or give a thumbs up or thumbs down. By the way, uh, Judge uh, Coney Barrett did quote Justice Ginsburg, no hints, no previews, no forecasts. Well, it would actually be wrong and in violation of the canons for me to do that as a sitting judge, Barrett told Senator Feinstein. Feinstein shot back, on something that is really a major cause with major effects on both the population of this country, it's distressing not to get a straight answer. Well, Barrett responded that she understood the question but could not pre-commit to a certain view on Roe versus Wade or its uh, progeny, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. During the questioning, Senator Mike Lee, he said uh, Barrett talked about how she tries to make sure she avoids bias in her decisions. One practice I have, one check that I put on myself to make sure that I'm not biased is that when I write my opinion, I try to read it from the perspective of the losing party so that any sympathy that I might feel for the particular result that I reach, I try to make the sympathy run the other way to see if, uh, if it will still hold and also to see what I still uh, think it was a well-reasoned opinion. She added, I think discipline is required, but I uh, take it very, very seriously. Well, as Feinstein continued to ask uh, Judge Barrett if she agreed with certain statements on precedent, Barrett continued to refuse to give answers committing to a certain outcome of a case. She did add that she would follow the principles of stare stare decisis, that's not quite correct, but which is the concept that the court will uh, defer to past decisions in most cases, depending on a complex confluence of factors. Senator Patrick Leahy, he brought up Democrats' calls for Barrett to recuse herself specifically from any election-related cases. He's counting on you to deliver him the election, Leahy said, noting comments by the president. Barrett said that she would not be able to make any commitment on recusing herself until a case came before her, citing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg description of when justice should recuse herself. Not only reading the recusal statute, looking at the precedent, consulting counsel if necessary, Barrett said of the process of considering recusal. Uh, while it's always the decision of the individual justice, it always happens after consultation with the full court. So I can offer an opinion on recusal without short-circuiting that entire process. Well, the nominee also emphasized that she has made no commitment to anyone about how I would decide any case. Leahy lamented that the president has placed both you and the Supreme Court in the worst position, while um, with comments, uh, rather, he made about how Trump hopes any election-related cases might be decided, added Senator Dick Durbin. Also a Democrat who came up with this uh, insulting notion that you might violate your oath. Could it have been uh, from the White House? Could it have been from the president's tweets? That's where it comes from. Well, other Democrats have demanded that Barrett recuse herself from the California versus Texas Affordable Care Act uh, case specifically. She also avoided making commitments when Feinstein asked her to weigh in on California versus Texas, the Supreme Court case set to be argued on the 10th of November that could overturn the Affordable Care Act. The judge refused to talk about the case except to say that it had to do with the concept of severability. And when a court decision, a part of a law is unconstitutional, 
and must be overturned, it then decides whether the rest of the law can stand without that part or if the entire law must fall because of the unconstitutional part was too central to its purpose. I haven't written about severability that I know of at all, she said, when asked to weigh in on the subject. She added that because the case is on the Supreme Court docket, the canons of judicial conduct would prevent me from expressing a view. So she didn't express one. Well, Democrats continue their uh, theme on Monday of emphasizing the consequence if the ACA were replaced, which they posit would likely happen if Barrett is confirmed. The coronavirus is seen as a pre-existing condition. Do you uh, know how many millions of Americans have tested positive for coronavirus? She went on to say that's, or they went on to say that's more than 7,700,000. Those people are uh, who are not considered to have a pre-existing condition. Leahy went on to say, he later noted that President Trump said he wanted the ACA to be overturned and suggested that the president, in confidence, uh, Barrett, is confident that she would overturn the ACA. Well, it went on and on from there, back and forth, trying to determine uh, what she would uh, rule or trying to get a commitment from her on particular things. Meanwhile, Barrett says she has had no conversation with President Trump about how she would rule on any case. Uh, And the nominee says she's uh, not hostile to Obamacare. She would look at it objectively from the standpoint of a judge determining whether or not it it uh, reached constitutional muster. She also answered questions at the confirmation hearing without notes. She was asked about whether or not she had notes with her. She held up a blank piece of paper. It simply said Senate hearing on it. So all of her answers to all of those questions, specific cases and so on, uh, she was able to discuss without notes of any kind. Uh, She was grilled before the Senate Judiciary Committee. She'll be grilled again tomorrow. And observers did note that she responded to hours of questioning with still hours to go later in the day on judicial matters without using uh, any notes. Uh, By all measures, she will very likely be confirmed. Uh, Donald Trump has put her in a very difficult position, the Democrats insist, uh, making her um, ruling on two cases in particular, if there is a case in which the election is called into question, and secondly, on the Affordable Care Act. But again, we'll follow those stories as they develop, should, in fact, Amy Coney Barrett be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up for the next two segments of today's program in this hour, we'll hear a classic interview with co-author Craig Austin. He is the author of American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. Well, returning to the headlines, uh, Donald J. Trump earned his fourth Nobel Peace Prize nomination in 32 days. He was nominated this time by a European Parliament representative from Finland. Uh, Trump's nomination is in recognition of his endeavors to end the era of endless wars, construct peace by encouraging conflicting parties for dialogue and negotiations, as well as underpin internal cohesion and stability of his country. Uh, wrote the uh, let or said the letter uh, dated Friday to the Nobel Committee. This parliament uh, member from Finland said that Trump has nearly completed a presidential term without involving the U.S. in a new foreign conflict while withdrawing troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. She also cited the Abraham Accords, uh, the peace deals between two Arab Gulf nations and Israel. Additionally, she said Trump has maintained national cohesion and secured law and order at home. More on the earlier nominations, including Trump's work on the breakthrough peace deals in the Middle East will be considered as well. The 2020 prize went to the World Food Program on October 9th. 
Well, Yelp is planning to allow for the flagging of businesses for unsubstantiated allegations of racism. And uh, sometimes it's defined as uh, simply as you don't embrace my view of the subject, uh, which may fall short of what the traditional definition of racism has meant. Well, Yelp announced that they are debuting a new policy that allows customers to report and flag businesses that they believe are racist without evidence. Now, when a business gains public attention for reports of racist conduct, such as using racial, uh, racist language or symbols, Yelp will place a new business um, on their page to inform users, along with a link to a news article where they can learn more about the incident, the company said in a statement. So literally, if you want to destroy your uh, opponent's business, there's a new way to do that. Uh, you don't have to substantiate your allegation. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick, he's weighed into politics once again, promoting abolishing the police altogether and eliminating prisons. You have to wonder how that would go. Uh, the Hill points out that in his uh, piece, the written piece, the um, demand for uh, abolition, Kaepernick argues that Institutions of justice should concentrate more on the well-being of people instead of controlling them. He said reform was uh, um, unviable during the ongoing uh, discourse. Well, Judge Barrett will uh, praise Scalia in her opening hearing statements and did, saying the court should not make policy. The Democrats are colluding to accuse the GOP of court packing ahead of Judge Barrett's hearings, and that has continued. Bill Barr tells the Republicans that Durham's uh, the report won't be ready by Election Day, and Hillary Clinton maintained the 2016 election was not on the level, and we still don't know what really happened. Well, at least she claims that she doesn't know. Trump is preparing a new $1.8 trillion coronavirus relief package, urging Congress to go big. And a Democrat group is spending millions on fake news Facebook stories in key states, according to the National Review. Nearly 50,000 Ohio voters received the wrong ballots. They say they're going to fix it. A Planned Parenthood audit shows accusations of multiple incidents of racism. The sins of the founders, Margaret Sanders, apparently apply to the third and fourth and fifth generations. Well, the Washington Post is blaming systematic racism for George Floyd's robbing a Latino woman at gunpoint. You can read more on that at Front Page Magazine. I just scratch my head just a bit. And Trump is no longer a COVID-19 transmission risk, according to the White House doctor. Trump says he uh, seems immune to COVID. Twitter labels his uh, tweet misleading. That is a bit misleading. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, Barrett Senate uh, hearings, the second day uh, occurred uh, today. They began at about 9 a.m. Eastern time. Each senator uh, was given an opportunity to grill Barrett over issues that uh, will relate to her background, past judicial decisions, overall judicial philosophy, hot button legal issues such as abortion, health care, or the man who nominated her, President Trump. Looking at the first day, it appears that a major part of the Democrat strategy, which they continue through the day for opposing Barrett, is her past criticism of the Supreme Court's 2012 decision that upheld the Affordable Care Act. She wrote about the majority opinion criticizing uh, the author of that opinion. Uh, one week after November's election, the Supreme Court will hear a case in which it will determine whether Obamacare is still constitutional now that uh, there's no longer a penalty attached to the individual mandate. The media has echoed the Democrats in challenging the definition of court packing with this, the Supreme Court battle uh, in full swing. And the American Bar Association rated Amy Coney Barrett well qualified in a statement ahead of the confirmation hearings. Tucker Carlson weighed in on all of that, saying that the Democrats treat 
uh, treated the first day of Amy Comey Barrett's hearings like a campaign rally. And plurality of Americans uh, think the Supreme Court of the United States is ideologically balanced. A Gallup poll found that the CNN skipped much of the historic Amy Coney Barrett hearing. They've got bashed for that. And criticism of the judge's faith uh, in an attempt to bring back the days of religious tests um, has been called out and has been less of a focus this time around. And the Supreme Court nominee um, uh, has held her own throughout these this first day or actually day two of the hearings. Meanwhile, Biden repeated a gaffe saying that he's running for the Senate, appearing to forget who Mitt Romney is. Now, this sort of things happens to people from time to time. But when you're running for president and there have been a series of them, people are making a lot of those kinds of gaps. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden speaking to reporters en route to a campaign stop in Ohio yesterday was involved in a series of gaffes, including telling those assembled that he was uh, running for the Senate. The second such time he's made that mistake on the campaign trail. Biden also appeared to have trouble remembering former Massachusetts governor and current U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, who ran against Barack Obama in 2012 in the presidential election. Election, his name when he was asked if Judge Amy Coney Barrett's faith should be considered during her confirmation to the Supreme Court, something the Democratic nominee flatly rejected. President Trump, not surprisingly, mocked Biden's recent gaffes on Twitter. In other developments, Biden questions the memory of voters in a poll who say they're better off now than four years ago. Biden also says Barrett's Catholic faith should not be considered during the confirmation process in full swing now. Well, Nancy Pelosi is facing backlash after rejecting the president's $1.8 trillion economic stimulus uh, offer. The House Speaker is facing some pushback from fellow Democrats after sharply rejecting the White House's latest and most expensive $1.8 trillion coronavirus relief offer over the weekend. Nancy Pelosi, take this deal. Andrew Yang, a former Democratic presidential candidate, tweeted on Saturday, put politics aside, people are hurting. Well, the Trump administration's proposal... Uh, which came just a few days after the president abruptly called off negotiations before reversing course and pushing for a bipartisan agreement, drew criticism from both Republicans and Democrats, dimming the odds of another round of emergency aid before the November 3rd election. In a weekly letter to Democratic colleagues, Pelosi said the administration's proposal lacked a strategy plan to crush the virus and gave the president too much power in determining how the funds were spent. This proposal amounted to one step forward, two steps back. The plan was expected to include a fresh round of $1,200 stimulus checks, expanded unemployment benefits at $400 per week, and additional funding for state and local governments. Well, in other developments, the Fed's uh, Powell has urged more federal stimulus to help the economy recover from the coronavirus pandemic. That's not likely to happen before the election. And uh, Nancy Pelosi has rejected a standalone airline relief bill without a bigger coronavirus aid deal. The president is uh, preparing that new deal, which has uh, been soundly rejected by the speaker. But some on the Democrat side are suggesting maybe we need to take a look at this. Well, the dollar is lower as investors now believe the U.S. economic stimulus will be reached after the November 3rd elections. And Representative Doug Collins has introduced a resolution to push for push rather for the removal of Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker. Trump um, rally goers uh, drown out Jim Acosta, who was on air They chanted, CNN, I don't use the word typically, sucks. Well, a North Dakota farmer plowed a Biden-Harris message into his field. It went viral, and then it caught fire. And a Florida deputy has attacked while chasing a suspect, the suspect apparently having having stabbed him in the neck. 
Well, a Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine study has been paused due to illness, and Wisconsin has denied Foxconn tax benefits or failed manufacturing plant promises. Well, the predictable first day of the Judiciary Committee hearings continues. The uh, state of Washington is uh, considering seeking a change of its name. After all, Washington was the slaveholder. The inconvenient detail of history is the worldwide nature of slavery. Uh, the Seattle Times uh, says the uh, summation rings true, referring to Alexis Coles. What's clear is that however Washington felt about owning human beings, he wasn't willing to part with everything uh, he had to free them. So Washington State, at least some in Washington State, considering actually jettisoning, jettisoning the name in favor of I'm not sure who or what else. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Craig Olson in our classic interview, American Restoration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, America seems to be crumbling from within. We seem to be in trouble. Now, people may define the reasons for that in different ways, but in our 250-year experiment in ordered liberty, has it really run its course? Or is there hope for an American restoration? Well, in American Restoration, published by Regnery, my guest and his co-author, Vice President for External and Government Relations at Focus on the Family, uh, and former political reporter and ardent student of history, they make the case that an American restoration is not only possible, but probable if we act now. Now, is this a political solution? Should we storm Washington with solutions we think ought to be implied or rather applied? Well, the key to an American restoration is for Christians to engage with the current culture rather than flee from it. They argue that Christians have the unique opportunity and calling to be salt and light that will renew our culture. This engagement has to take place, especially at the local level where real spiritual and cultural transformation occurs. Well, the book is a roadmap back to restoration for Americans and the pair of authors explain how Americans with God's help can renew 15 critical components of our culture today. Well, my guest is Craig Osten. He has collaborated with several best-selling authors on more than a dozen books, a former political reporter and an ardent student of history. He graduated from the University of California, Davis, and did graduate work at California State University, Sacramento, and Fuller Theological Seminary. He, along with his co-author, Timothy Gaglian, Vice President for External and Government Relations at Focus on the Family, present a roadmap if we would like to see the restoration of the American ideals that at least have been aspirational throughout our nation's history. Craig Olsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. Let me invite you to begin with to uh, outline the, the concerns that you have for the state of the nation and how important it is for us to take seriously, first of all, the, the uh, need for, uh, for change in the culture and the role that we might play in it. Well, we are at a crossroads. I mean, all you have to do is watch the news every night see the culture. We're a culture who's no longer talking to each other. Instead, we're screaming at each other. And as a result, there is no way that we can come together as a country and, one, deal with issues we need to deal with, but, two, it's, it's we have become so divided that we're no longer talking to each other, and that's having just a horrible effect on our communities, our neighborhoods, and our homes. And all of these things are helping, and when we don't deal with the issues at that level, the whole structure of our country starts to fall apart. 
what role do you think the church has played either in this disintegration or the hopeful um, restoration of one nation under God? Well, the church on one hand, you know, unfortunately, I mean, along, you know, about 30, 40 years ago, a lot of churches, unfortunately, chose to sort of check out and not engage the culture. We kind of retreated and said, okay, we're just going to do our own thing. Let the culture be the culture. Well, when the church retreats, that means everything else can go into that vacuum that it created. So that's one of the issues. However, the other hand, the church can also help redeem the culture, can help be salt and light, can help show how it can affirm human life, how it can affirm marriage, how it can affirm religious freedom, if the church is willing to, and we as Christians are willing to engage rather than withdraw the culture. Uh, one example we share in the book is in the church I attend to, attend, we have we are a pro-life church, and one way we do to show our pro-life beliefs is we have a need for special uh, ministry for special needs children and those families, which affirms those families, and it shows that every life is valuable. Mm-hmm. Now, what role does the, the clergy play in all of this? Is this a responsibility or a role that individuals see themselves playing as part of the body of Christ? Is this a, 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 the absence of leadership? Uh, behind the pulpit in churches, where do you see this emerging on the individual level as a community in the church or from church leadership, or perhaps a combination of all three? It's a combination of all three. Obviously, church leaderships are, are called to inspire their to you know to inspire their congregations to teach you know God's word you know as and to you know to proclaim God's truth. But as individuals, we are also called to be salt and light to our culture. And just not come on Sunday morning and be passive attenders, but to, but to go out and be Christ to our neighbors, to our communities, not withdraw into our homes, not talk to our neighbors, not, you know, to, we, you know, so often we go on Sunday and we don't engage with anybody during the week in terms of those who we can influence in our community around us. And it's amazing what can happen when you start to interact with people who you would think would totally disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I have seen this in my own life where I've been able to build bridges to people who are totally on the other side of the political spectrum. And we've been able to find common ground. That's because I reached out to them with dignity and respect and showed that I cared about them as a person and showed that I was, I wanted to listen to them and that allowed me them they were open to listening to me, but I had, I had to, you know, reach out and also not come across as someone who is going to preach to them, but to someone who's going to share my views in a manner that is respectful and is reasoned and well-mannered. And it's amazing the dialogues I've been able to have. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're called to do as, as individuals. And, and, and as the church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, American Restoration really provides a roadmap back to uh, restoring the values that uh, we um, at least aspirationally um, believe the, uh, the country uh, should be focused on. Can you walk us through some of these uh, areas in which this roadmap takes us toward restoration? 
Well, first of all, some of the issues we deal with is first of all our first chapter dealing first of all with our you know restoring our Judeo-Christian foundation, which we have forsaken in so many ways, remembering what our foundation comes from, where our nation was founded. Without that foundation, you can't really start without on all the other values. Um, one of my great heroes is uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, and I've studied him immensely, and I've written another book on him uh, with someone else. And when you read, he had a statement from his 1953 inaugural address where he said, a people who values principles over privileges soon loses both. Uh, and so that is so true. If we have, for, so if we, we have forgotten those initial principles upon which our nation was founded, and we just focused on the privileges. So you have to start going back and focusing on the principles first. Now, what do you say to those, excuse excuse the interruption, but what do you say to those who focus on the crack in the foundation? Uh, Certainly, um, ordered liberty was unevenly applied in our nation's history. We haven't uh, seen uh, the nation uh, progress perfectly, uh, but the principles upon which the nation was founded that were aspirational, that we still presumably aspire to. What do you say to those who focus only on the cracks in the foundation and perhaps have no idea of what that um, those founding principles were uh, because of that focus only on our shortcomings. Right. Well, well, I say the principles were sound. The problem is we as, as human beings and, as, and especially as Christians, we know men are imperfect and we know we're sinners and we know we're, we're, we're going to make mistakes along the way and bad mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, cracks like slavery and racism, things that were, we're horrible and should be denounced. But the bottom line is you don't, you don't want to throw the baby, to use the old cliche, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we, by focusing on the cracks, we, we, for, we forget those, those principles, which will, which are still a strong, strong foundation. Absolutely. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again. We're talking about uh, the book title America, uh, I should say American Restoration, How Faith, Family and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. If you're looking to Washington to resolve all of the issues, you might be looking in the wrong place, perhaps a bit closer to home. As the book suggests, we ought to begin. We'll continue our conversation with one of the two co-authors in a moment. So stay with us. Craig Austin will join us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation this afternoon with a co-author of American Restoration. My guest is Craig Osten. Uh, the uh, book uh, is about how faith, family, and personal sacrifice can heal our nation. I think a lot of people are very skeptical about the prospect of restoring Americans, uh, American values. Uh, but you, in this roadmap, um, explain how Americans, how average folks like me and you, with God's help, can renew 15 critical components of our culture today. Um, you're more optimistic, and I suppose that small phrase, with God's help, uh, fuels that optimism. Yes, it does. We have to remember, first of all, we can't do anything without yes. God. Um, as, you know, as we're reminded, without Christ, we can do nothing. Um, and the, the other issue is, we have, if we have a hopeful view, then that can fuel us to take the steps, rather than 
that we need to take to restore our culture. And we need to keep focused and we need to persevere. Unfortunately, so many times as Christians, we've given up and we haven't persevered. And, and well, those who oppose our values and, you know, or, and who are, you know, advancing anti-Christian stuff in the culture, they always have their eye on the goal. They're always persevering. Um, I grew up in San Francisco in the 1960s and 70s, so I kind of saw how things changed there. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I was I saw how the culture changed, how the churches changed, how the schools changed, and everything. And those who opposed our values were very focused on what they wanted to do. And even when they weren't successful, they kept at it. They kept at it. They kept at it. Unfortunately, what we do is sometimes. If we win something, we go, oh, good, we can take a deep breath and walk away. This is a long-term effort, and it starts in our homes. Again, it's, if we can't put these, instill these things in our children, then we, in our families, then how can we instill them in the community? So we need to start there and start with our neighbors and start with our communities. But that's exactly how the, those who opposed our values did it, they kind of gave us a roadmap. Um, and we're, what we're talking about in this book is this is the roadmap to reclaim these principles in each of these areas, but it's going to take perseverance. It's going to take faithfulness. Yeah, I think for many of us, it, when there has been a political defeat, that's sort of our our gauge as to whether or not to continue in a particular fight. But what you're talking about is much more grassroots, close to home, beginning with how we conduct ourselves as individuals that then can be translated into cultural change and impact, uh, which I think is much more approachable and more hopeful. Yes, government is not going to solve any problems. Rather, it's on the well, your perspective is on the left or the right, really. I mean, the left looks towards government, but so many times we, on the, those of us who are conservatives and Christians, have looked to government as, oh, we get the right person in office, great, we'll be we'll be fine, and we go back to you know to our or to our huddles, and meanwhile the culture continues to rot underneath us. Well, we may you know we might have someone who's more you know friendly towards our values in the White House or in Congress and so forth. So we have to, we have to start there in our homes, and, and it has to bubble up rather than expecting to come from the top down. Yeah. And it bubbles up through our, through our faith, through our actions. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, again, let's look at some of these areas uh, that this roadmap um, helps to guide us through. One of them is restoring religious liberty and um, there's growing concern about whether or not we can maintain what the Constitution guarantees, but uh, doesn't uh, suggest that the state is the originator of religious uh, freedom, religious liberty. Um, and there's growing concern that that capacity may be uh, waning um, in our uh, culture today. Talk about that and some of the other uh, areas of restoration that this book focuses on. Well, religious liberty is so huge because without that, which is our first liberty, without a religious liberty, none of our other liberties can be possible because it's what's religious liberty that allows, you know, freedom of speech, allows freedom of association, all our other freedoms. Now, that is so important. Um, when you are telling someone that they cannot live out, you know, their most deepest beliefs, that they have to suppress that, 
you are denying the core essence of an individual. And also a key thing about faith is how, again, how we treat others. You know, as Christians, we are called to see people in the image of God, to treat them with dignity and respect. Part of that way is to treat them, one, is to treat them as God sees them, but also to speak truth into their lives. Without being able to do that, you know, which often which will come through often our religious freedom and showing the love of Christ through our faith, then we we can't even begin to you know the other steps to restoration. Um, it's our faith that helps that you know in, that compels us to be involved in the life issue, because again we we see each person as you know, worthy of dignity and respect mm-hmm. in the image of God. So that it compels that area. It's our faith that compels us, you know, for, uh, men to be gentlemen, to treat women with respect, as we talk about in the chapter. It's our faith that instills the virtues that of tower, you know, of fortitude and so forth that, you know, help us with our faith. It's, it's our faith that compels us to be good citizens. So without religious freedom and ability to live out our faith, and we can't do all those other things that will, that will allow us to, you know, be, be Christ to the culture around us. You also have chapters on restoring virtue, restoring civility, yeah. and restoring community. Again, these are very approachable. This is where we live. This is what we're doing. This is who we associate with. And it gives us a sense of um, I can make a real difference without having to hop on a plane and fly to Washington and try to persuade. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's an important part of what we we need to do as well is influence um, oh, yeah. policymakers. But it doesn't it's not limited to that. And I appreciate your emphasis on it's important what I'm doing as an individual, my character and how I relate to others in my community. Right. I mean, we you know we're, we're never calling any we're not calling anybody to ignore what's going on in Washington, D.C. As Christians, we are called and we are commanded to be involved in our government. So that, you know, if anybody construes that we're saying that, that, that is wrong. But we are called to engage with people, the culture. I'll, I'll give you just a personal example, and I don't mean this to build myself up. But last year I had my 40th high school reunion, again, back in San Francisco. Not an area that's really friendly to conservative Christianity. Um, you know, I have friends that I grew up with. They're, they're, most of them are very liberal at this point. Most of them are in the different belief systems and so forth. But I've gone back there, and I've always tried to treat them with dignity and respect. They know who I am. They know what I stand for. But I've, tried, I've engaged in conversation with them rather than coming in and attacking them right away. As a result, at my 40th reunion, I had more opportunities to share my faith than I've ever had before. I had one friend who's a very liberal college administrator, very, you know, against our current president and so forth, who asked me a question about what I thought. And I said, well, I would like to talk to you more about that. It was over dinner. It was kind of difficult. I reached out to her. We had a very nice email exchange and she appreciated how we could thoughtfully discuss things. Yeah. And she came thing came across said, you know, I realize I wish we could get back to the original concept of religious freedom as we have, you know, as was met in our constitution. We are able to find common ground 
but it was through respectful dialogue. That's how you change hearts. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is titled American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. It is a hopeful book and gives us a roadmap on how to arrive at that destination. Thank you so much for collaborating with your co-author and for taking the time to uh, share uh, some of your book with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you very much. Again, my guest, uh, Craig Ostin, author of American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing this afternoon. While the polls and the odds makers may point against Trump, but his chances may be better than they think. Quoting from First from Gallup, Byron York points out, would you say you and your family are better off now than you were four years ago, or are you worse off now? Well, a whopping 56% said yes, they're better off now. Remember that the poll was taken just a couple of weeks ago after months of anxieties associated with the coronavirus pandemic, the lockdowns, and the accompanying economic plunge. And a solid majority still said that they're better off today than before Trump was elected. Now, what will that mean in terms of ballots cast? We'll just have to wait and see. That would be November 3rd, by the way. Kevin McCullough is tracking with the poll averages, but is looking for a commanding Trump win. Now, one thing the polling averages won't tell you, he says, is that the hesitancy to tell posters what they think is a real phenomenon. A little more than a month ago, Bloomberg published a survey that demonstrated Republicans and independents are more than twice as likely as Democrats to not reveal to pollsters their true thoughts. I mean, the ridicule that comes along with that, I can understand why. No matter who wins, don't expect things to calm down anytime soon. Zelina Zaito says there is no exit from the roller coaster anytime soon. The Washington Examiner has more on that. Well, last minute fundraising by Democrats has garnered the attention of Republican campaigns. Political points out that the online fundraising edge that Democrats have enjoyed for years has mushroomed into an overpowering force with small dollar donors smashing donate buttons over the last three months. Iran is seeking a strategic alliance with China. In what could well be called a new axis of evil, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, he made his case this weekend. The Free Beacon points out the countries have already made some overtures. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zaved Zarif arrived in China on Friday to deepen bilateral ties, citing anti-American sentiment as a major building block in the country's relationship. And the Lakers' victory celebration turned into rioting and looting, injuring eight officers. We can't just celebrate anymore. There has to be destruction that goes along with it. Thousands of fans stormed the streets of Los Angeles in celebration, ignoring repeated warnings from officials to not gather on mass um, due to health threats. It wasn't long before fans outside the Staples Center started demonstrating with the Los Angeles uh, Police Department called confrontational, violent, and destructive behavior in the streets, and officers began making arrests. Well, when officers tried securing the area, they were met with hostility. One police vehicle can be seen being chased while people threw things at it. One video showed a mob attacking a Metro bus. The terrified driver repeatedly honked the horn as the Lakers fans smashed the windows, spray-painted graffiti all over the exterior and interior and eventually set it on fire. Looters targeted a Starbucks in downtown Los Angeles as well. And Sunday night, there were 76 arrests, over 30 buildings damaged, eight officers injured, two rioters injured non-fatally. Wow. Well, Gal Gadot has been uh, reamed by the left for being cast as Cleopatra. 
Now, you may not even know who this actress is and why would they pan her? Well, she happens to be an Israeli actress. There was severe criticism for casting an Israeli actress as an Egyptian queen. Well, CNN uh, political commentator Dr. Abdul El-Sayed wrote on Twitter, so there was no Egyptian woman to play um, an Egyptian queen. Well, others were seemingly more fixated on Gadot being Israeli and having proudly um, served two mandatory years in the Israeli army, which is required. Journalist Samira Khan said, which Hollywood thought it would be a good idea to cast an Israeli actress, says Cleopatra, a very bland looking one, she adds, instead of a stunning Arab actress like uh, Nadine Najim. Uh, posed to Khan, again, the writer, and shame on you, Gal Gadot. Your country steals Arab land and you're stealing the, uh, their movie roles, shaking my head. So apparently politics has seeped into the casting of certain individuals into certain roles. From the Times of Israel, however many, including the screenplay author, were quick to point out that Cleopatra was neither Arab nor black, but rather a Mediterranean Greek Godot did not react to the controversy, but later tweeted that the film would mark the first time Cleopatra's story would be told through women's eyes, both behind and in front of the cameras. Well, Facebook has taken a stand against Holocaust denial. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO, said, my own thinking has evolved as I've seen um, data showing an increase in anti-Semitism uh, and anti-Semitic violence as um, have our wider policies on hate speech, he wrote in a post, drawing the right lines between what is and isn't acceptable speech isn't straightforward, but with the current state of the world, I believe this is the right balance, that it would be banning Holocaust denial as part of an update to their hate speech policy. So trying to manage what uh, speech is going to be permitted and not permitted is now uh, one of Zuckerberg's major roles. We'll talk later about uh, a Christian ministry that simply had its um, Facebook page scrubbed Without any explanation, no warning, just eliminated. They didn't like the content. We'll talk more about that if time permits today. Well, the president returned to the campaign trail, claiming victory over the coronavirus. And uh, Trump's stock gains hit a Republican record. And Biden uh, talked of attending a black church as a teenager, but members of the congregation don't recall him actually ever having been there. Uh, 21 were arrested at a D.C. protest on the first day of the Amy Coney Barrett hearing. And Back the Blue Blexit event in D.C. ended on the mall with a national anthem. Uh, there were about 2,000 people who participated in this event. You didn't really read much about it. Uh, Columbus fans defied the culture, the coronavirus, with holiday celebrations across the country. And social justice warrior LeBron Sut Lakers won the title. Thousands of fans ignored virus restrictions and some violently targeted police. Gina Haspel has blown off senators' demands to quit stonewalling Congress on the Russiagate oversight. And the median household will pay more under the Biden-Harris tax plan. A farmer made a giant Biden-Harris sign out of hay bales, but it was set on fire the next day. Not clear by whom. What could go wrong? Well, Yelp added alerts to warn users about businesses accused of racist behavior. Um, doesn't have to be substantiated, by the way. And a Nevada man's COVID-19 reinfection, the first in the U.S., is yellow caution line about the risk of the coronavirus. Well, U.S. forces conducted uh, targeted strikes to slow a Taliban advance. And a meth bust in the U.S.-Mexico border is the second largest in history. Speaking of history, on this day in history, 1775, the United States Navy has its um, origins in the Continental Congress orders the construction of a naval fleet. 
1792, the cornerstone of the executive mansion, later known as the White House, is laid by President George Washington during a ceremony in the District of Columbia. 2003, the U.N. Security Council approves a resolution expanding the NATO-led peacekeeping force in Afghanistan. 2010, rescuers in Chile, they use a missile-like escape capsule, pull 32 men one by one to fresh air and freedom 69 days after they were trapped in a collapsed mine a half a mile underground. And on this day in history, 2018, President Trump welcomes American Pastor Andrew Brunson to the Oval Office, celebrating his release from nearly two years of confinement in Turkey. Well, Portland protesters toppled two statues of former presidents on Sunday night in downtown Portland and drew the ire of the current commander-in-chief and marked the latest such uh, uh, figures to be brought down amid demonstrations against racial injustice. The protesters felled statues of Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. They also shattered the entrance to the Oregon Historical Society, broke windows and destroyed a sign at the Portland State University campus, public safety office, smashed storefronts and caused other destruction. Police Police were not visibly present while the statues fell, but eventually flooded the area and arrested three people. The president sounded off about the event, which was declared a riot in a series of tweets. The statues were toppled during an event billed as an Indigenous People's Day of Rage. I wonder how many Indigenous people were actually participants. It came ahead of Monday's federally observed holiday of Columbus Day. And many states and cities now recognize the day instead as Indigenous Peoples Day over concerns that Christopher Columbus's arrival helped launch centuries of violence against indigenous populations. Meanwhile, the Twitter um, handle Generational Resistance, which promoted Sunday night's Day of Rage in Portland, that resulted in the toppling of the statues and damage of several buildings. Uh, their ultimate goal, it's now been uh, determined, is to decolonize society by working to abolish colonial systems rooted in racism. The report said well, the Oregonian newspaper wrote a lengthy article about the group that started mentioning the protest a day earlier. The paper said the city is having difficulty getting a grip on protesters because social media allows allows them to organize quickly and coordinate. The report said one of the instructions on Sunday was that videos and photos were not allowed. Andy No, a journalist who's been documenting the unrest in the city, posted images of the destruction on Sunday on his Twitter account. He posted a video of protesters toppling the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, which depicted the former president riding on horseback. The video showed a rope tied around the statue and protesters could be heard cheering when the statue shifted. Now, I can't... Um, quote much of what was said because the language is not permitted, uh, not only by the FCC, but by my own standards. Well, after toppling the statues, the crowd smashed windows, as I mentioned. Uh, the paper said the protests resulted in three people being taken into custody, was billed online as the Indigenous People's Day of Rage and took place the evening before um, Columbus Day. Now, the paper said it reached out to the generational resistance members, was issued a statement through its Twitter handle on Monday night that said, we stand to decolonize ourselves and decolonize society by working to abolish colonial systems rooted in racism and build community rooted in liberation. President Trump took to Twitter and posted the radical left fools in Portland don't want any help from real law enforcement, which we would provide instantaneously vote. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and others, sort of unclear, said of Sunday night's demonstration, uh, said to be a representation of indigenous people's rage, defied the wishes of native and other people of color 
when some protesters broke windows, threw flares into downtown historical museums, stole an African-American heritage commemorative quilt, uh, toppled statues, fired gunshots into a restaurant. Well, during a news conference uh, yesterday, uh, Wheeler State Representative Tana Sanchez, the only indigenous member of the state legislature, and police chief Chuck Lovell, they called damages to the Oregon Historical Society, as well as several downtown businesses and Portland State University buildings, obscene, inappropriate, and unconscionable, particularly because the museum has worked to help people understand Oregon's history of racism. To destroy that is to destroy the past. Representative Sanchez, who represents the North and Northeast Portland, we have to grow and learn from the past. We cannot just dismiss it and make it go away and act as if something is going to be better afterwards. We have to learn from the past in order to make things better, end quote. Well, Lovell noted, that's the police chief, at least two people fired guns downtown in Southeast uh, Portland Sunday night, and several downtown businesses were vandalized before police intervened. A group of native leaders from Portland, the Indian Leaders Roundtable, said that they denounced the property damage from the night before. The damage to the Oregon Historical Society building was disappointing, particularly because of recent exhibitions that displayed accurate depictions of Native American history, the group said. We understand there is justifiable righteous indignation over the unconscionable mistreatment of our people and communities over centuries. And that Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, it's a time to reflect and speak out against these injustices. The Portland Indian Leaders Roundtable said, yet we cannot condone pointless acts of violence. This is the frustration within every community that is purportedly represented by groups that devolve into violent expressions of outrage. He went on to say brandishing of weapons that serve only to detract from the real message that must be heard. Now, the, uh, the mayor, who is seeking re-election next month, said he believes he and other city leaders have the roadmap to address the destructive actions of some protesters during the demonstrations, as well as other city uh, issues such as homelessness and gun control, among objectives he um, uh, ticked off. In violence by some protesters, by public calling, it, uh, calling for it to, st- uh, to stop. We're a little late for that. Um, redeploy uh, officers back to neighborhood precincts, find a compassionate way to get homeless people off the streets as fast as possible. He's had several years to do that. Clean up graffiti and other property damage and help pandemic impacted businesses reopen. My administration is doing all that. Now, I would like to see the evidence of his administration doing all that, but he says that's what they're currently doing. He noted the city council approved rerouting $15 million from the Portland Police Bureau budget before adopting the overall city budget in June, and that the amount fully redirected could be as much as $27 million by the end of fall due to coronavirus-related cuts and other reductions. He said he didn't believe more funds would be taken from the police bureau due to concerns he's heard from the public on long delays in time it takes officers to respond to emergency calls. Boy, nobody saw that coming. You defund the police, you reduce the numbers, and they're just not available to do what police officers have done, 99% of the time done well. The mayor went on to say, for me, it's going to have to be a very high bar that's going to have to be cleared before somebody can make the case to me that further reductions are either needed, warranted, or appropriate, given the real public safety needs in this community. Well, this is a little late in coming, but it is a campaign, and uh, he's in a very tough race. Um, Andy No, who has uh, recorded much of what's gone on in our community with regard to the protests, riots, and violence across, and I'm making distinctions between uh, the three, uh, but he scored again uh, with an exclusive of the Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Ayanarone posing for a photo with a collection of communist icons, including Chinese Chairman Mao Zedong and Che Guevara, uh, on her skirt. 
Now, the debate um, spilled out to Sarah's own Facebook page uh, with people commenting on this as well. Now, why on earth would you as a an individual seeking to, and she's already identified herself as a uh, as something of a Marxist, but uh, to wear this skirt brazenly, uh, it, it seems just beyond the, the pale. And you can see the images of all of these communist dictators on the skirt she is wearing, which gives you some indication of the kind of race here in the city of Portland. Ted Wheeler, Ayanna Roan. Ted Wheeler, Ayanna Roan. I wonder if there's room in Gresham, just saying. Well, a Northeast Portland woman is spreading a message of love after she received um, letters laced with racial slurs. Um, she said that uh, she had expressed um, that she supports the notion of Black Lives Matter, uh, and that resulted in all kinds of responses that were, to put it mildly, unflattering. She received hate mail in July, but now she's decided to do something else. Uh, you'll find pl plenty of special yard signs uh, around this community. I can't even explain the feeling, said Kamala Adams. I feel so loved. And this is after her expression of support for BLM. Uh, Adams is the inspiration behind the signs that show um, first in the uh, fist in the middle of a heart. The message is simple, love over hate. I think people need this message, she said, and she decided to respond to the um, hate mail that she received in this way. Perhaps nobody knows the significance of the message more than uh, she does. So over the summer, after showing up on television in support of Black Lives Matter, she received a letter in the mail. It was laced with a half dozen racial slurs and threats. The sender even threatened to murder Adams and her daughter with an AR-15. It was terrifying and eye-opening at the same time. There was so much love pouring in for me from my family and friends and neighbors, she said. I received love letters and letters of support from everyone in the community and family members. She quickly learned that love triumphs over hate, and she and her friends dreamed up the love over hate motto and the yard signs neighbors are eager to put up in their yards. I was just driving out to... Uh, uh, escaped my home yesterday, and I saw the signs throughout my neighborhood, and was straining to see what the uh, what the words were beneath the the fist with a heart in the middle. Uh, but it's love over hate. Um, uh, she says that my family and I are doing a lot better thanks to family members, friends, and community members. I wouldn't have been able to go through what I went through without the community surrounding me. And uh, pdxloveoverhate.org, you can learn more about that. If you're interested in posting the sign or learning more about what lies behind it, pdxloveoverhate.org. Well, as you may know by now, the Commission on Presidential Debates has canceled the second scheduled debate between President Trump and Democrat nominee Joe Biden. That was supposed to be on the 15th after the president refused to participate in a virtual debate over concerns that his opponent might be fed answers or uh, staff members might be feeding him information. Well, a statement from the CPD announced the debate will not proceed while saying the final scheduled debate the following week is still expected. It's now apparent there will be no debate on the 15th. The CDP will turn its attention to pre uh, preparations for the final presidential debate scheduled on October 22nd, according to the commission. The Wall Street Journal first reported that the debate, which had originally been scheduled as an in-person town hall style meetup in Miami, would no longer take place this week. One day before canceling the debate, the commission had announced that it would uh, shift from holding an in-person event to a virtual format in light of the president's coronavirus diagnosis. He's now been declared uh, non-toxic, if you will, but that didn't matter. Shortly after the announcement that the debate would be held remotely, Trump said that he would not participate in a virtual debate with Biden for a number of reasons. Also, Trump ripped um, Steve Scully and his claim that his um, account had been hacked um, 
Following the uh, cancel debate, his bosses are furious at him. He went on to say, well, C-SPAN host Steve Scully has been hit with a tidal wave of skepticism when he claimed that a tweet from his account reaching out to former White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci was the result of a hack. Well, the president sounded off against the selected presidential debate moderator after the Commission on Presidential Debates officially canceled debate two. Uh, the next. Ever Trumper, next debate moderator, got caught cold. Pull out uh, the old I've been hacked line. Uh, That never works. His bosses are furious at him, and he has lost all credibility, the president tweeted. According to a statement from C-SPAN, Scully did not originate the tweet in question. The statement added that the Commission on Presidential Debates was investigating the incident with the help of authorities. Uh, The commission uh, later stated that it had reported the apparent hack to the FBI and Twitter as part of its investigation. Well, a spokesperson for Twitter said that uh, we've no comment when asked to confirm whether or not Scully's account had been hacked. Uh, Scully, who has not yet uh, publicly addressed the controversy himself and couldn't be reached for comment, has a history of blaming hackers for posts made on his Twitter account dating back uh, to 2012-2013. So if he writes something, it's unpopular. The response tends to be, well, the hackers did it. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump has tested negative for the novel coronavirus on consecutive days, according to the White House physician who maintained that the president is not infectious to others. Well, the White House physician, Dr. Sean Conley, penned a memo to the White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, with the subject line, President Donald J. Trump negative COVID-19 test. In response to your inquiry regarding the president's most recent COVID-19 tests, I can share with you that he has tested negative on consecutive days using the Abbott uh, Binax Now antigen card, Conley wrote. It's important to note that this test was not used in isolation for the determination of the president's current negative status, end quote. Well, Connolly added that repeatedly negative antigen tests taken in context with additional clinical and laboratory data, including viral load, uh, sub-generic RNA and PCR-style threshold measurements, as well as an ongoing assessment of the viral culture data, all indicate a lack of detectable viral replication. Wow. He went on to say this uh, comprehensive data in concert with the CDC's guidelines for removal of transmission based precautions have informed our medical team's assessment that the president is not infectious to others. Well, Connolly's statement comes after the president on Sunday told supporters that uh, he has been tested totally negative for COVID-19. Monday was the first time that he's released information on the status of the president's coronavirus. So apparently the president is coronavirus free. Congressional Democrats' renewed embrace of the 25th Amendment is not aimed at removing President Donald Trump from office, at least not in the near term, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said. Maybe they're just um, preparing for a potential second term of um, Donald Trump or a first term of Joe Biden to be uh, followed by Kamala Harris. This is not about President Trump. He will face the judgment of voters, Pelosi said, but he shows the need for us to create process for future presidents. Well, the House's top Democrat is backing a proposal to establish a government commission to evaluate the physical and mental fitness of the president for continuity of government at a time when Trump uh, was recovering from COVID-19 and has been on several medications for it. There are those medical professionals who say that certain medications can impair judgment, she says. I don't know, Pelosi told reporters. This is really important. It's not about any of us making a judgment about the president's well-being. 
Uh-huh. It's about this respected bipartisan, both aspects of it, the medical side of it and the dignity statesman side of it. Uh, are selected by equally by the speaker and the Senate leader in a bipartisan way. And the vice president is crucial to that. That's a direct quote. So it was a little choppy and awkward. Representative Jamie Raskin initially proposed similar legislation to establish establish such a commission in 2017. The bill has 38 Democratic co-sponsors, including the House Judiciary Committee chairman, Representative Jerry Nadler, um, Nadler's panel likely would be the committee to consider the proposal. The 25th Amendment allows for the vice president and a majority of cabinet secretaries to determine whether a president is physically or mentally unfit to carry out the duties of the office. The vice president would become the acting president on a temporary basis. Congress could remove the president from office permanently with a two-thirds vote of both the House and the Senate. That would be an even higher bar to reach than impeachment because the latter requires only a simple majority in the House. Well, the 25th Amendment was adopted in 1967 after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. There was a legitimate uh, vacancy left by his injuries. Um, It was uh, based on the concern about what to do if the president were still alive but experiencing a health crisis. Well, Raskin's um, proposal points to Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, which empowers Congress to establish a permanent body with the concurrence of the vice president that can declare that the incumbent president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The 25th Amendment was adopted 50 years ago, but Congress has never set up the body to it calls for to determine presidential fitness in the event of physical or psychological incapacity. Now is the time to do it, Raskin said. Why now is the big question. Now, some have argued, yes, this is a tool to remove Donald Trump if he's reelected. Others say this is a tool to remove Joe Biden if he uh, demonstrates an incapacity uh, to lead uh, due to dementia, in which case Kamala Harris would become the acting president. The White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany tweeted that Pelosi um, had seemed to be opening uh, open to impeaching Trump again and then seemed to lose her train. A train of thought in the interview. The only one who needs the 25th Amendment is Nancy Pelosi herself. Good morning, Sunday morning. She bizarrely blurts out after suggesting impeaching uh, President Trump. The press secretary said in a tweet, well, regardless of whether the proposal is about Trump now, Democrats and activists on the left, they pushed the 25th Amendment as a means for removing Trump for years. Well, months after Trump took office in 2017, January, some on the left started the duty to warn movement that pushed for Trump's ouster via the 25th Amendment, asserting his tweets and behavior indicated he was not mentally fit to be president. A Yale psychiatry professor who edited the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, even gave a 2017 Capitol Hill briefing for members of Congress that were seeking to oust him with the 25th Amendment. At the press conference on Friday, Speaker Pelosi was open to applying the 25th Amendment to Trump at a later time. If the president wins this election, yes, it will apply to him, Pelosi said. If he doesn't, it will apply to the next president of the United States, which, of course, would be Joe Biden. It's not about the election at all, she said, although that's a bit hard to believe. Representative Jim Jordan, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, tweeted that the 25th Amendment talk is just another bizarre attempt by Democrats to oust Donald Trump. First, Democrats tied the Russia hoax. Uh, Jordan tweeted, then they tried the fake impeachment. Now they're trying to use the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. Like the president said, they're coming after him because he's fighting for us, end quote. Well, we'll see what actually happens with this commission. And if the effort moves forward, if uh, Joe Biden is the next president of the United States.
Well, the president has approved a, a revised coronavirus relief package, and he wants to do a deal. The White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who had been in negotiations with Speaker Pelosi before, said on Friday that the president has approved a new coronavirus relief package two days after abruptly calling off negotiations on another round of aid for American workers and businesses still reeling from the pandemic. He would like to do a deal, Kudlow said during an interview with Stuart Varney. Now, where this is going before the election? Probably nowhere. After the election, depending on the outcome, uh, we may see some movement, but it doesn't seem like that's possible over the next, what, two, three weeks. Well, data suggests that mandatory lockdowns exacted a great cost with a questionable effect on transmission. Well, in 1932, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, he famously called the states laboratories of democracy. Different states can test out different policies and they can learn from each other. Well, that proved true in 2020. Governors in different states responded to the COVID-19 pandemic at different times and in different ways. Some states like California ordered sweeping shutdowns. Others like Florida took a more targeted approach. Still others like South Dakota, they dispensed information but had no lockdowns at all. As a result, we can now compare outcomes in different states to test the question no one wants to ask. Did the lockdowns make a difference? Well, if lockdowns really alter the course of this pandemic, then coronavirus case counts should have clearly dropped whenever and wherever lockdowns took place. Well, the effect should have been obvious, though, with a time lag. It takes time for new coronavirus infections to be officially counted, so we would expect the numbers to plummet as soon as the waiting time was over. Well, how long? Well, new infections should drop on day one and be noticed about 10 or 11 days from the beginning of the lockdown. By day six, the number of people with first symptoms of infection should have plummeted. Six days is the average time for symptoms to appear. By date nine or 10, far fewer people would be heading to doctors with worsening symptoms. If COVID-19 tests were performed right away, we would expect the positive to drop clearly on day 10 or 11, assuming quick turnarounds on tests. Well, to judges from to judge rather from the evidence, the answer is clear. Mandated lockdowns had little effect on the spread of the coronavirus. Now, the uh, uh, the case um, indicates that as you monitor what states did to whom for how long and so on, there was very little impact. Now, this is uh, disturbing. You kind of scratch your head. But wasn't this the panacea we had all been told? would uh, ultimately uh, put an end to the increase in numbers. Well, as in almost every country, we consistently see a steep climb as the virus spreads, followed by a transition uh, to a um, reduction in numbers, but not necessarily in the way that one would expect if the isolation made a difference. And this is a, a new study that seems to indicate those um, those lockdowns were less effective than originally anticipated. And then they wonder why people question when they're advised to do one thing or another. You have competing uh, reports from legitimate government agencies telling you the opposite thing to do or don't do. This just being another sowing confusion into this whole season where people are trying to do what's best for them, their family and for their community. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. District Court has sided with Fuller Theological Seminary against two students who claim the school violated anti-discrimination laws when it expelled them from being in same-sex marriages. Well, this week, the Central District of California blocked a lawsuit from Joanna Maxson and Nathan Bitson 
who were uh, each dismissed from Fuller for failing to comply with the seminary's sexual standards policy, which holds that marriage is between one man and one woman and bars homosexual conduct. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty that represented Fuller says the court's decision, the first of its kind for a seminary, strengthens constitutional protections for faith-based institutions that want to apply religious standards to their community. Well, Beckett Senior Attorney Daniel Bloomberg <clears throat> excuse me, called it a huge win for religious higher education, ensuring religious institutions, rather than the government, will be deciding how to teach the next generation of religious leaders. Maxson and Britson sought Title uh, nine protection, claiming they were dismissed in 2018 and 2017 based on sex and sexual identity, and each requesting a million dollars. The court ruled that Fuller, as a religious organization enforcing its beliefs on marriage, fell under a religious exemption to the federal anti-discrimination law. The sexual standards policy limits its definition of marriage to a heterosexual union and prohibits extramarital sex. Fuller interpreted this policy to mean that same-sex marriages violate the religious tenets of the school. Uh, the court is not permitted to scrutinize the interpretation Fuller gives to its religious beliefs. Well, Maxson, one of the plaintiffs, had completed three years of uh, coursework online before the school saw her wife listed on tax returns. Britson, an American Baptist Church's USA minister, had requested a name change after uh, getting married the summer before beginning those courses. Well, Paul Southwick, who is an attorney representing the uh, the couple, previously told Christianity Today that their case could set an important legal precedent that if educational institutions receive federal funding, even if it's religiously affiliated, even if it's, it's a seminary, that it's required to comply with Title IX prohibitions on sex discrimination as applied to LGBT individuals. Well, Fuller officials referred to Beckett to comment on the case, and they issued a release from the firm which read, as a religious educational institution, the seminary has the First Amendment right to uphold specific standards of faith and morality for the members of its Christian community. Federal civil rights law was affirmatively protected first fundamental constitutional rights for decades. Until now, no courts had ever been required to apply those laws to protect a seminary. Fuller's win helps protect religious schools nationwide. Fuller Theological Seminary is the largest interdenominational seminary in the country, with 3,500 students enrolled at its headquarters in Pasadena, California. Uh, it's or rather Pasadena. It's Texas uh, campus and online. Also, Facebook has uh, removed the page of Restored Hope Network, the Christian ministry that helps those with unwanted sexual attraction and gender confusion. While no explanation was given as to why the page was taken down, the ministry believes the social media giant's move is part of an ongoing effort in support of government prohibitions on the practice of what some refer to as conversion therapy. It's a phrase that uh, Restored Help Network maintains has been weaponized to shut down any kind of counseling that coheres with the historic Christian faith views on sex and ethics. It is a deliberate and misleading provocative term coined by the LGBTQ activist community that doesn't describe any type of actual counseling assistance offered to men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction. Ann Polk, executive director of Restored Hope Network, in a statement uh, told Christian Post on Thursday, um, Facebook's actions amounted to an example of viewpoint discrimination. Facebook is deciding they have the authority to silence the stories of those of us who live out, uh, whose lives have changed. She went on to say their dismissive action, canceling our page as uh, it um, 
as if it never existed, leaving a vague, the link may be broken message in its place is shameful. Not even extending us the courtesy of a notification, a chance to offer uh, the other side of the very politicized story is unconscionable. Well, Ann Polk added in a Thursday interview with the Christian Post that it's important for Christians to understand that their views about human sexuality and personhood are not welcome on the world's largest communication hub. And we're going to see much more of this in my editorial comment on issues beyond sex, but uh, issues issues of uh, Christian faith altogether. It's like a community center that uh, certain people aren't allowed in and they're being forced out, she said. We have to be wise about how we respond here. Legally, it appears that Facebook is above the law, but keeping a record of what's happening um, gets the information to lawmakers that care and see its impact on a bunch of people, which is coming, is very important to fight for Uh, our rights. Well, she added that within culture, a systematic problem of hostility toward Christians pervades in a number of fears, with social media being just one. She uh, is going to be attempting to restore the ministry's uh, Facebook page and develop other ways of maintaining communication. We existed before Facebook, she says, was uh, ever around. We'll exist after Facebook is around uh, because we belong to the Most High God, Polk said. Well, despite the censorship, which began with the removal of posts earlier this year, the ministry has no plans to cease its work advocating for those who struggle in this way and wish to live in accordance with their faith. The last time I looked, uh, Anne said, Uh, We live in the United States. Freedom to choose what you do with one's life and seeking help that uh, one wants is a dearly held value. We'll continue to follow this story. Again, the Facebook page just removed with no uh, explanation, no warning, nothing. Meanwhile, a study says that 44% of self-identified Christians in the U.S. believe the Bible is ambiguous on the subject of abortion. Well, a recent study has found that more than four in 10 American Christians say they believe the Bible is ambiguous when it comes to the subject. The finding was part of an Arizona Christian University's America Worldview Inventory 2020 survey. It's a service of the school's Cultural Research Center. Well, the center's director is a well-known Christian pollster, George Barna. According to the survey, 44% of self-identified Christians say they think the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. 34% of self-identified Christians said they think abortion is morally acceptable if it spares the mother from financial or emotional discomfort or hardship. This isn't the life of the mother. This is financial, emotional uh, discomfort discomfort, interesting word, or hardship. 34% of self-identified Christians reject the idea that marriage is defined as between one man and one woman. That's 34%. And these are self-identified Christians. 40% of self-identified Christians say that lying is morally acceptable if it advances personal interests or protects one's reputation. Well, the irony of the reshaping of spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. Unfortunately, Barna says, the theology of this reformation is being driven by American culture rather than biblical truth. For several years, pro-abortion activists have circulated biblically suspect claims that scripture teaches that life begins at the first breath. And although other passages seem to contradict such assertions, it's been embraced conveniently by those who want the less controversial path. By the way, the study surveyed 2,000 U.S. adults as a margin of error of plus uh, minus two percentage points. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and join us tomorrow for the Union Gospel Mission Radiothon. 
We're going to be focusing on families who need help as Thanksgiving approaches. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.